I'm Jess. And I'm Tiff. And we're your Curious Cousins. Where we talk about everything kooky and spooky in the state of Oklahoma. Welcome to episode six. Welcome, friends. We're back to a little dark history. Yes. I'm interested to see what Jess is going to talk about. Yes. Well, I'm interested in yours as well, because I honestly don't, sadly, I don't really know much about it. Right. Do we have any business? No. Jess and I spent the weekend celebrating her birthday in Houston. We got to see one of our very favorite podcasts. We Um, did. It was awesome. Yes, they are amazing. They're an inspiration to us, I guess we could say. I think it's what really kind of started our wanting to be like, oh, we could do this. Yes, exactly. I think we could do this. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to do it. (laughs) So we went and saw the live show in Houston of And That's Why We Drink with... M. Schultz and Christine Schaefer. We did. It was so fun. Oh my so gosh. Fun. So it was good. So fun. And we can't talk about what we saw. No. We can't but talk it about w- it. Just know it was amazing. It, it was, was amazing. Awesome. And when it comes out, you guys are going to be shooketh because <laughs> it shooketh us. <laughs> yeah. There were it legit did. times where Jess and I both jumped. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. For sure. And there were times when I was like, I thought I felt my chair shaking when I wasn't moving and I didn't notice the person next to me moving. But Tiff said she thought the person next to her was shaking her leg or something like that. Because my whole body was shaking. So maybe it was that. The only bad thing I had to say about the entire experience, there's two. One was the bag check, which was ridiculous. And number two was the fact that we were so closely packed together yes i think they could have spread those seats out just, just a little a more tiny bit just a little like, we didn't need to be touching each no. other and good thing we're family and we didn't care too much but when you're touching meet. strangers yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like hello yeah exactly so but other than that it was amazing we got to see lemon yeah we did we got to see we the did. infamous lemon so that was fun so if you don't listen to them go over they're so popular so i'm sure most of the people if you listen to us you probably listen to them too or heard of them maybe yes for sure oh i remember something so you know we had our listeners tell us last week yes and i talked to my friend c yes because remember we were asking about the name on the door yes Yes. she did clarify it was her husband's name on the door and i was like that's disgusting (laughs) (laughs) no thank you ma'am nope nope not staying the night at her house no she was she texted me and was like so i guess this means you're not gonna like come and spend a weekend with me and i was like do you want me to go co-sleep with you because that's the only way (laughs) oh my gosh no yeah we've already got some more listener tales coming in for next time so i encourage everybody else to please 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 keep them coming you're kooky you're spooky you're weird you're interesting we just want to hear from you yeah we do we do so with that jess you want to start today Sure. Okay. So my topic today is the Aerolex fireworks factory disaster of 1985. Never heard of it. I hadn't either. (laughs) So this might be a little morbid, but when we were talking about what we were going to do this week, I was just trying to think of what I wanted to cover. And there are things, but with our short week that we had, I just didn't feel like I had enough time to 
delve into what I really wanted to. So I got on the internet and I googled (laughs) Oklahoma tragedies and this popped up and I had never heard of it before. And so that's what we're covering. Yes. So let's just dive right in. So all my sources are actually newspaper articles that I got off the internet. And my first source is the accident report number 1449563, fire and explosion and fireworks plant. And I got that from OSHA.gov. That's official. Yeah. And the next one is called official identification of victims. Cause of blast awaited by Charlie Smith. And it was written on June 26, 1985. And I got it off of APnews.com. My third one is fireworks. Works explosion killed 21 by Nolan Clay from the Oklahoman on December 31st, 1989. And my last article is called June 25th, 1985, Aerolex fireworks plant blasts leaves 21 dead by Nolan Clay, the Oklahoman, April 18th, 1999. Wow, 21. So that's a lot. All right, getting into it. So a little bit of background. Airlex Corporation was owned and operated by Richard Allen Johnson. Airlex was a fireworks factory that opened its doors in 1973, and it was located in northeast Oklahoma. So the plant's workers came from the small towns of Jennings, Terrellton, and I might not be saying this right, but it looks like Hallett, H-A-L-L-E-T. Yeah, that's how you say Hallett. it, I'm pretty sure. Okay, and Cleveland. The fireworks that the plant manufacturer they weren't like smoke bombs or snakes. They produced the big, awe-inspiring fireworks you see at baseball games, at the 4th of July celebrations. Like, like the, the ones firemen like have to set off. The big, big, okay, yeah. big fireworks. <clears throat> Airlex Corps, they had developed quite the reputation for the quality of their fireworks. And cells were, at this time, up. So they were doing really well at the time. And in fact, still girders had also been brought into the plant for a planned expansion. That's just the little bit of background that we have. Okay, okay. And so now on to the event. Or tragedy, whatever you want to call this. I mean, it is actually a tragedy, but so on June 25th, 1985, the day started out just like any other day. The plant was busy preparing for the upcoming 4th of July. It had its normal staff of about 10 employees, but had expanded to almost 30 because of the upcoming holiday. So they had more workers. Makes sense. In the morning, around 9.40 a.m., just two hours into the workday, a massive chain reaction explosion occurred, leveling the entire factory completely. So the blast exploded into a giant fireball. Oh, my gosh. And the mushroom cloud of smoke could be seen for miles. Holy smokes. The, yeah, and the, literally, yeah, and the explosions could actually be heard as far away as Tulsa, which is about thirty miles away. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I know where Cleveland is and Hallett, obviously, on my drive to Western mm-hmm. Oklahoma when I go to Stillwater, mm-hmm. and I know I pass those places. And Chris's uncle actually lives in Cleveland, I think. So, yeah, oh yeah, I mean that really is close to Tulsa. Yeah, it's not far. It said that windows rattled as far away as. 13 miles away and it only took about 15 to 20 seconds to destroy three wood frame and 10 buildings in 
quote, a domino effect all the way through the thing, which was said by Bob White, who was at that time a resident agent of the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, also known as the ATF. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, it was just like one after another completely yeah. and i can't even i can't even fathom something being destroyed that quickly in my mind it's almost like where you've seen those old those old films of mm-hmm. like them testing atomic bombs yeah like just like on a smaller scale right. perhaps yeah i mean that's that's kind of what i pictured in my mind and you can if you look up pictures yes just looking at the devastation of it it's just heartbreaking Uh and it happened in such a small community yes and so such a small population of workers yeah and and, you know it was one of those things where you have to think that it was a slim possibility that someone wasn't affected by this in that community right you know it was so probably it's tight I don't small. Yeah, I don't think there anybody that wasn't. The victims, which totaled 21 people, there were 14 females and seven males Mm -hmm. died instantly in the blast. Five people were injured who had they were already outside at the time. One of the five people was Richard Allen Johnson, who was the owner. Yeah, this tragedy was the deadliest disaster in Oklahoma in the 80s. So I'm just going to read to you what OSHA or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration wrote in their report really quick. And this comes straight from their report. Okay. And the reason why I'm reading, it's a short, it's short, but it kind of gives you an idea of what they found when they investigated it. So here we go. All employees, with the exception of number 21, who was just visiting the facility. No. Yeah. We're engaged in manufacturing and or assembling Class B fireworks at different locations throughout the 40-acre complex. The plant consisted of 13 processing buildings and one Class 1 storage magazine. Pyrotechnic explosive material was being delivered to an assembly building by pickup truck. The material was contained in a 20-gallon metal trash can. Employee number 9 was unloading the material from the back of the truck. He jumped off the back of the truck while holding onto the can of material with one hand. He stumbled when he hit the ground and continued to stumble through the door of the building. Along with the can, there was an explosion which propagated to other buildings in the complex. All the buildings were destroyed. The dead employees were burned and dismembered, mostly beyond recognition. The five survivors suffered lacerations, fractures, and burns. None of the survivors were in a building at the time of the explosion. So that's what was on OSHA's report. Oh, wow. And uh, so they're saying that because that man or... I'm assuming it was a man. I can't remember now. That that employee that jumped down, he somehow like started it. Like he was the. Is that what it? Yeah. Sounded like it. Said? Yeah, I'm kind of gonna get into it. Okay. I don't know if it'll okay. really answer that question because, honestly, the people who know what happened were killed in that accident. Obviously, yeah. But investigators found evidence that two young workers were seen unloading barrels of firework ingredients in a, quote, careless manner from a 1971 pickup truck. 
Later, plant manager Danny Bridges recalled seeing one youth laughing at the other for stumbling with a heavy can just before the explosion. So I guess somehow when when the young man stumbled, it, like it shook up the contents or something. Some, I, I mean, I guess it had to have. Oh my. It's it's just crazy how one little thing like that can be so devastating. Oh man. Or in my mind, it's like that's those raw materials were that explosive yeah and I, I mean i know they are explosive i mean obviously they're fireworks but oh i don't know i just that's hard to just fathom yeah and i'm about to get into some of the uh, what's the word i'm looking for there were sorry that scared me <laughs> my kids are home <laughs> I wasn't used to that noise. <laughs> there were concerns, I guess, surrounding this because well, I'll just go- get into it. People under the age of 18 are forbidden by law from working at such plants. But the medical examiner's list of identified victims included three. One was only 13 years old. Whoa. He was there helping his mom while she worked. She okay. was also a victim. Okay, okay. One was 17 and one was 18 years old. Okay. So when they say young man, it could have been one of the 17 and 18 year olds. Yeah. It, it, I mean, maybe not. I don't know. It. I honestly didn't find. I'm sure there's a list of all the victims and their names, but I didn't look into it that far. Yeah. But because we have to realize these people who passed their families are still around absolutely so i don't want anyone to think we're taking this lightly because it was such a tragedy oh wow mary lewis whose mobile home was less than a mile away it was shifted off its foundation by the blasts wow and she said that it was a real popular spot for teenagers to work and make some good money so it was like kind of one of those summer job kind of things and David Highbarger, an investigator for the state medical examiner's office, stated that the explosions and heat hindered identification of the bodies. <sighs> Workers found shattered bodies as far <sighs> away as 200 yards. What? He said... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. He said, quote, We used dental records, old x-rays, personal identification papers, anything we could. Temperatures were so high that in some cases, the victim's teeth were incinerated, mm, making identification mm. from dental records almost impossible. Oh my gosh. I can't even begin to fathom what kind of impact this had, not only on the community, but the victim's families that survived, but the impact it had on the people who had to come out and try to identify the these trauma people. that these first responders had to have had. Yeah, I can't even fathom what kind of psychological oh effect, gosh. you know, effects this had on, on everyone involved. Yeah. I did read that the American Red Cross in Tulsa was on site to help and that counselors were made available to survivors to help cope with the tragedy, but was there also for the workers because there would be a delayed kind of reaction well yeah and this was actually this is what's crazy this was actually the second explosion to happen at this no. at this airlux fireworks no. plant so in 1979 an explosion occurred but there was no injuries oh the blast gosh. The blast was blamed on sunlight reflecting off a car mirror onto combustible materials. Oh. But oh. The, the plant was rebuilt. Okay. So, and then 
the second explosion happened June 25th, 1985. Oh, my gosh. So. I cannot believe I've never heard of this. I know. Well, you know, my my parents were living in Tulsa at the time. Because, I mean, that was literally like three months before I was born. Yeah. So I... I asked my parents if they remembered it at all. And they said, oh, yeah, I, I remember hearing about that. But they didn't give me any specifics. Like, like it wasn't on the news or something. Yeah, probably. I think they remember hearing about it. But they didn't um, mention anything of like, oh, I was doing this at the time when yeah. I heard it. Or, yeah. oh, I heard the explosion. Like, yeah. it was nothing like that. But holy, that's wild. But yeah, I was really surprised that I had never heard of it before. Yeah. Because it's still such a I don't know I was just shocked when I read it honestly yeah so they didn't rebuild after this right well all right let's move oh, on great <laughs> so we'll move on to the aftermath oh, geez. so like I said 21 people were killed five people were injured in addition to the plant owner Richard Allen Johnson two other men remained hospitalized one was in critical condition two others were treated and released after the tragedy there were lawsuits a congressional <laughs> hearing revelations that the firework industry was poorly regulated and an outcry for safety reforms nationwide and at this time little little came of it yeah one federal safety agency was hit by the disclosure and it had no up-to-date list of firework manufacturers and had not even known that the airlex plant even existed so it wasn't even on their list of Uh, of companies goodness. <laughs> yeah in 1986 osha announced a quote special emphasis program to inspect the nation's firework factories only 39 factories were actually inspected in okay this didn't really make sense to me but maybe i'm just you know not there but only 39 factories were actually inspected in 169 attempts according to reports so whatever that means no. To me, it means 39 factories were inspected, inspected. And the rest were like, all right. Yeah. But these 39 are good. So are you all. Right. So Osa. Oh, Osa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> OSHA assessed the Aralex owner $58,000 in civil penalties for 13 federal safety violations. That's it. And John lives were lost and $58,000 was all he was assessed. Yes. And Johnson wasn't able to pay the penalties. He had already sold a family grocery store in Tarleton to pay back wages to 20 surviving employees and the families of those who were killed in the explosion. Okay. Some good did come from the tragedy in an industry where there was hardly any regulations. There are a lot of new regulations that are valid and make it much safer, though it's, you know, it's not perfect. No. The Airlux factory plant was not rebuilt after the explosions that happened on June 25th of 1985. Well, I think that makes sense. It doesn't sound like right. and, that was the um, business for. Yes. Them. Even though Richard Allen Johnson did not have the plant rebuilt, he did stay in the fireworks industry. <laughs> oh, and he worked as a consultant for a couple of different fireworks companies. I hope he consulted with what not to do. I'm sure he did. And I did read that, uh, um, especially in Tarleton, they, for a long time, uh, when the 4th of July came around, it 
they didn't wouldn't even celebrate. I mean, you'd have PTSD. Exactly. And I think it was just fairly recently when they started started back up. And when I say recently, I mean I think it said 2016. Wow. Like, okay. Well, I mean, that makes recent. Sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I can imagine that, you know, that would, I mean, it would rank up there, you know, with people who have been through war torn areas. Right. You know? And not, and, and you know, there were five survivors. Oh, and yeah. one of the men who survived was the one who lost his wife and his 13 year old oh, son. Gosh. Oh, man. So, you know, he, I remember reading him saying, you know, I don't know why I survived when the person two feet away from me didn't. Oh, man. And I, I do know that he did get remarried, mm-hmm. I think, in 1986 or something. But, mm-hmm. uh, it's just I can't even imagine. I just can't e- even fathom any of that. But so that was the Ehrlich wow. fireworks disaster of 1985. Oh my god! I just cannot believe that we have never heard of that. that I, I haven't heard anyone I else know. cover it before. Way to go! Well, I'm glad you're bringing some light to that. Well, it's just I think it's important to still remember that. Mm-hmm. And even yeah. though the fireworks um, factory didn't get rebuilt, those families are still there. It's yeah. a, I think Tarleton has a population of a hundred people. I mean, that just shows you how small these towns well, were. Yeah. And so they're still small. They're, they're still, still small, small. And they are still probably hurting from this. It was just, wow. I uh, talk about story. a bummer story, but. And, but that's a good story. I'm glad um, that you shared it. I hope, I hope those families are healing and. Oh, yes. I hope they um, found some closure. Some and solace. Some and, and, yeah. Oh, so. Wow. That's my story. Wow. Good story. Thank you. Well, you want to hear about, I'm probably going to bust some myths here. (laughs) Mainly probably some old, old myths. Maybe make some people angry. It's okay. But I'm going to talk about the infamous stealing of the Oklahoma State Capitol. Nice. All right. Nice. So let's um, let's set the stage. Okay. Um, I'm going rogue today. I did not type my notes and they are handwritten. So please let's excuse not excuse me on this. Well, you know, it has been quite a long week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here we go. When Oklahoma Territory was established, Congress established Guthrie as the territorial capital. Right. There had to be a there had to be a capital. That's what they mm-hmm. um, established it at. At the time, we were divided into two different territories. Oklahoma Territory and Indian Territory still. At this point, later in history, they do merge as one simply because, well, white men are going to do what white men are going to do. Right. And essentially, Congress did not want natives in Mm -hmm. charge of a state simply because they believed that the natives would oppose all national laws and rules trying to regulate them. And Mm -hmm. the natives wanted to keep their own governments. Yeah. And they had been doing it for hundreds and hundreds of years that way. I mean, why not? Why not do it? Exactly. We were merging into one state at this point. And so the first territory legislature took place in 1890. And the first governing body of Oklahoma Territory was not the same as Indian Territory at Mm -hmm. this time. Indian Territory was still governed by the tribes. Because of this first territorial legislation, lots and lots of locations were determined because they had to determine what they were going to do because the goal in the end was statehood. Mm -hmm. So they had to get the whole territory organized first and then it could end with us becoming a state. 
Mm-hmm. So first, right off the bat, they had to determine the locations of the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma A&M, which is now Oklahoma State. And oh. so they immediately decided that Norman would get the University of Oklahoma, Stillwater would get Oklahoma A&M. Interesting. And then they needed to determine where permanent capital would be. The first law that was ever enacted was called the Organic Act of 1890. It charged this legislature with locating and establishing a seat of government for said territory. That's all it said. It never stipulated where it had to be or how big the population had to be or, you know, any of that kind of like if that was where the center of commerce was. Any of the important stuff. The biggest myth is that Oklahoma City stole the capital from Guthrie. Right. That's what that's I've what, always heard. That was what I was told. That's what probably most of us were told. I feel like that's what I was taught in school. I, I'm, me too. And it's not, that's not 100% true. Interesting. Okay. We'll tell get me. to the part. Tell me. But I, I will say it wasn't not without its sneakery and its, uh-huh. you know, strategery and uh-huh. that kind of stuff. Let's take it back to August of 1890. The legislature meets at McKinnon Opera House in Guthrie. Mm -hmm. At this point, there's no Capitol building built. There's no courthouses built. So they're they're meeting in an opera house. Congress, the U.S. Congress, has designated Guthrie as the temporary capital. But the citizens of Guthrie did not see it that way. Mm. This is the capital. That's what it was known as. Uh So with this happening, it ensued a 20-year battle between who was going to be the capital of Oklahoma. 20 years, I did not know that it lasted that long. I didn't either. I do have a question. Okay. And you might answer this later, so feel free to shoot it down. Okay. Um, do you think that you said, like, the people of Guthrie, they were like, this this is the capital. Yeah. Do you think the government told them, like, oh, instead of saying it's a temporary capital, like, they told them, oh, yeah, this is going to be the, the capital to get them on board? I think they more or less said that this is the capital and that's it. Okay. And so people interpreted it the way that they wanted to interpret it. I see. And the people of Guthrie interpreted it as this is yeah. the capital of when we become a state. This is the capital. Okay. I see. It was first rumored, one of these funny rumors. There's lots and lots of rumors. Nothing is concrete, set in stone. None of this yeah. is. All alleged. It is all alleged for the most part. It said that they spent 120 days in the fall of 1890. Are there 120 days in fall? I don't know. No. <laughs> Sorry. But they spent 120 days in session, uh-huh. and 100 of those days were spent fighting about where the capital was going to be. Oh, good grief. 20 of those days were spent with establishing schools and prison, which makes me think, mm-hmm. no wonder we underappreciate schools and education in the state. We only spent 20 out of 120 days. Right. The majority of days were spent squabbling with two like different children over where a stinking capital was going to be. Yeah. That was kind of one of those little... Fun facts or myths, kooky things about it. The stealing of the Capitol takes place in two rounds. This is round one, where all the trouble begins, which is October 1st of 1890. Council Bill number seven is presented to the council. And sometimes they're going to use council in the place of Senate Mm -hmm. because I believe because we were not yet a state we couldn't use the term senate yet oh okay this council bill number seven wanted to locate the capital in oklahoma city 
And there was a tripartisan group mm-hmm. of Democrats, Republicans, and a populist group, which was very popular in Oklahoma. <laughs> this They combined this group of three parties, I guess you could say, uh-huh. and um, they created what was known as the Oklahoma City Combine. So mm-hmm. it's like an own little gang that they created. Yeah. Really, they were held together by their self-interest, meaning that Norman and Stillwater were a big part of it because mm-hmm. if this bill passed, of course, or they would vote for it to pass, because Norman was going to get the University of Oklahoma, Stillwater was going to get Oklahoma A&M. Mm-hmm. And then Edmund got on board because they were going to get what was called the State Normal College or the Teacher College, um, which, of course, that's now UCO. Alma mater. <laughs> Enter C.G. Gristmill Jones. Oh, that's a name. Yes. Wait, um, was Gristmill his first name? I think it was more of a nickname, okay. but his okay. initials are C.G., and so maybe his middle name was Gristmill, but he went by Gristmill Jones. I don't know why, but it makes me think of Grismelda and like some kind of spooky <laughs> name or something. So, I don't know. That was dumb, but whatever. But I will continue to refer to him as Gristmill because Jones is a very popular name. It is. He is going to be, keep his name in your head because Gristmill. he is going to be. I don't be... think I can forget that. <laughs> He is going to last the entire 20-year saga. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's a Republican who crossed the aisle to join the Oklahoma City Combine. Uh-huh. A populist by the name of Arthur N. Daniels was nicknamed Sockless Statesman of the Canadian. Huh? I don't know why he was nicknamed that. Sockless. Sockless, yes. And he's referred to as Sockless. Maybe he didn't wear socks. Um, he, he had stinky feet. Want... My kids are singing in the background. He decided that he would join the Oklahoma City Combine if and only if he was named Speaker of the House. So, of course, they're like, well, yeah, come join us. Oh, man, of course he did. Yes. Sockless. Yeah. Okay. This is kind of speculation number one. There's two big speculations Mm -hmm. over what really went down October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Okay. Of 1890. So October 1st, after the vote, Gristmill and Hugh G. Trosfer, or Trosfer, I don't know which one it is, they were told to carry the bill to the council chamber, the Senate chamber, because the bill, number seven, had passed. Mm-hmm. So they were told, all right, you need to go take this to the council chamber. So as they were leaving, angry Guthrinites. Oh, is that what they're called? Uh-huh. I didn't they know were that. gathered outside the building. Uh-huh. Somehow they had heard the news already, but I think at that point people like by like bystanders could come in and spectators could come in and watch the And this is at the Opry the... House, right? Yes, yes. Okay. They could watch what was going on. Well, they were gathered outside the building and they spotted the two men. Uh-huh. And they were an angry mob, and they were going to confront them. Oh, no. And so the men escaped out the back door, then ran in opposite directions. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame them. It's no, not like, at all. zigzag no. pattern. Right, exactly. And it's just in my head, I'm like, the, and like, yeah. <laughs> weird music is playing as they're scurrying away from each other. Were there horses tied in the back so they could no. at least? Oh. No, they were on foot. Oh, no. Um, I, I would have been the one that tripped and <laughs> fell and got mobbed. Yes, you would. I Yeah. <laughs> So the men escaped out the back door, then ran in opposite direction. It directions. Trosfer had the bill on him, and the mob chased him down. Oh, he probably no. looked like he probably had that look on his face that, that was guilty like, kind of look. Don't maybe. pick me. I don't have it. Yeah. Pick the other guy. Yeah, exactly. And so he's being chased down by this mob. Well, somehow he takes the bill, unbeknownst to anybody chasing him, unnoticed, and tosses it into an outhouse. Oh. <laughs> wasn't expecting that i know 
<laughs> so he's not caught or seen tossing this villain, is running, running, running. The mob finally catches him. And they, they're searching his entire body. They're literally ripping his clothes off of him looking for this bill and can't find it. He tells them that Gristmill has it. Oh, no. What? So, of course, they're like, he went that way. I and mean, like, I can't say I probably wouldn't have done the same right, thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> so he, they left him to go and find Gristmill. Trosfer retrieves the bill from the outhouse and delivers it to the council. I w- so was the door just already open? I, that's all I have there. Oh, I, I've got questions. Okay. I've, I've got plenty of questions too, but that is literally where the tale ends. Well, I mean, I do find great fun and that he threw it into an house. <laughs> <laughs> Bathroom humor is always fun. I find it funny. I can't help it. <laughs> so many jokes. I mean. That are probably inappropriate right oh, yeah. now. We were already going down the you know what. My mom would be horrified because she already thinks I'm uncouth. But when you grow up with two brothers and you're the only girl and you're in the middle, I mean, what do you expect? Yes. All right. So we're going to go over to speculation number two now. All right. Now, this is to- as told by Dan W. Peary, or P- it's either Peary or Peary. I'm going to say Peary. <laughs> In 1930, and Whit Morton in 1908. So there's some years that pass before this part of this speculation of what actually happened. October okay. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Went All right. October 1st, Bill Number 7 passes. Right. The morning of October 2nd, the council, a.k.a. the Senate, uh-huh. votes to approve Bill Number 7. The Combine members then make a motion to reconsider the bill and stop all debate, and it fails. Mm-hmm. So this sealed the deal with the House on October 1st. Peary leaves the hall to send telegrams to Oklahoma City to announce Oklahoma City as the capital, but a messenger stops him and tells him to return to the House ASAP. Wait, where was he going? He was going to go send telegrams to Oklahoma, oh, from okay. Guthrie to Oklahoma City to tell them, hey, guess what? We're the okay. capital. Yay. Sorry, my mind blinked for That's a okay. second and I like missed that part. <laughs> my bad. So Peary re-enters the house meeting hall and it is jammed pack and in like chaos. So this one, this combine member, his name was Ian Terrell. He decides to leave the combine uh-huh. and decides he's going to go support Guthrie instead. Okay. So Terrell and Guth and this Guthrie bloke, that's literally what they called him, a Guthrie bloke. Like I have no name for him. Oh, I didn't tell you what my sources were, guys. Sorry. My source, I used a book called True Stories of the Unsolved and Unexplained Myths and Mysteries of Oklahoma by Robert L. Dorman. Great book. Great book. <laughs> Great author. And so this is who I used. And of course, the Oklahoma Historical Society's website. Uh-huh. Uh, just did That's some a great website. Oh, I love that website. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Me too. So anyways, uh, Terrell and this Guthrie bloke, they make a motion to reconsider the reconsideration of the bill. <laughs> and it passes. Oh. At this point, you would think, okay, Guthrie has won. Right. But it's not over yet. Uh-huh. So passed motion, but then all these guys are like, well, it's about noon. It's time for us to go to lunch. Oh, jeez. So during the lunch, the combine decides to start plotting. I mean, I guess you probably shouldn't make any important decisions on an empty stomach. Touche. Touche. Gristmill, he believed the bill had passed both houses already. Mm-hmm. So now it was time to have the bill signed and sent to the governor. Uh-huh. So this document was created and completed. Like they created, because it had already passed both houses, essentially. Right. So they created the document. Uh-huh. And all they had to do was go get the signatures and then send it to the governor. Right. 
And so they created the document, even though the second reconsideration said that the bill was now null. It gets very confusing at times. So did it happen while everyone was at lunch? Yep. Wait, what? Like they recreated the document? Yeah. While everyone was at lunch. Okay. I thought you said nope. Oh, yep. Yep. Okay. So when the meeting resumed, resumed, Peary had the document hidden on him. Peary pushed his way through the crowds and laid the document at the speaker, Mr. Sockless, uh-huh. Daniels, who signs it. Oh. And the document states that Oklahoma City is the capital. Oh, man. So he signs it. Peary then pushes his way back through the crowd, undetected. Peary passes the document to the other Combine members, R.J. Nesbitt, to have the Senate slash the council go and uh-huh. sign the document. Peary leaves the opera house and is met with a mob of angry Guthrinites. Well, yeah. They were holding Speaker Daniels down and tearing his clothing off at this oh, point. Oh, man. Daniels throws Peary under the bus and said he has it (laughs) Peary's coat is torn off of him and he heard someone call for a rope oh my god so someone pulls Peary back inside of the court of the opera house and he has the document no he actually doesn't he had already passed it off to Nesbitt oh yeah that's right I'm sorry so they are holding the doors closed because these people are trying to come in and tear at him yeah all right so the mob is now surrounding the building but somehow Peary slips out because now they have their sights set on Nesbitt now they've discovered that he might have it and that's another looking for him Peary hides in a butcher's shop all day behind an icebox now the good thing is the butcher was gone because he was a part of the angry mob I was gonna say was he there no he was part of the angry mob so Peary hides all day long there behind in that butcher shop he tells people that he heard the butcher saying that there was a lynching coming on he didn't know who was going to get lynched or what was going to happen when it kind of settles down it gets dark peary leaves and stops and returns at the council chamber or the senate chamber what they're called uh-huh. gristmill finds him there and they go to gristmill's hotel room gristmill leaves to gauge the situation outside to see what the mobs are like and then returns with a colt 45 <gasps> it must have been real calm you know <laughs> Oh, man. And so he gives the gun to Peary, and then he leaves and goes to Oklahoma City and returns with a bunch of reinforcements, a bunch of guys Uh to protect them Uh. from Oklahoma City. So the dawn of October 3rd comes. Okay. Gristmill and Peary return to the opera house. Speaker Daniels, Sockless, Uh is missing. (gasps) So now they have to find the replacement. Well, the second in line is Gristmill. Oh. So Guthrie supporters had the number of voters to stop the capital from moving. However, the Speaker of the House is the Combine member. It's Chris Mill. So he has some moves up his sleeve. Oh, man. At one point, a note appears from Sockless Daniels uh-huh. asking to have his name erased from the document that he signed the day before. Are we going to find out what happens to Sockless? Uh, no. Oh. No, we don't. Nothing interesting happens to him. Oh, I, think. I, think. I thought maybe he got lynched or something. No, the mob got to him and he decided to cave, I think is what happened. And uh, okay. Not that I wanted him to be lynched. But. No, I don't. Yeah. So the House votes to allow Sockless's name to be removed, but the committee voted to have Bill Number 7 be re-enrolled and signed by the House. And guess who is now the House Speaker? Grismill. Grismill is. Grismill. And so guess who signs it? Grismill does. So Council Bill Number 7 was given to Territorial Governor now George W. Steele because now it has been signed. While in the Governor's hands, another Guthrie mob gathers at Steele's office, the Governor, the Territorial Governor. Uh-huh. Steele informs them that Guthrie was still the capital. And a week 
later, he vetoed the bill. Now it's time for plan B. There's a regrouping of the combine members that represent now Kingfisher. Ah, Kingfisher's Okay. And the new plan is if Oklahoma City fails to become the capital, then the entire combine is going to back Kingfisher as the capital. Interesting. I had never heard that before. I haven't either. So now fast forward to October 16th. House Bill number 49 is put forth to move the capital to Kingfisher. Well, this enrages the Guthrie men. Well, yeah. Well, so a Guthrie man by the names of Charles Brown asked to introduce a substitute bill that would have named Oklahoma City as the capital and Kingfisher would get an insane asylum. He wanted to make the Kingfisher people drop backing uh-huh. Oklahoma City or the Oklahoma City people to drop backing Kingfisher and to go into, you know, backing where they would get the capital. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because so, that would be appealing. Oh, we got an asylum. Yeah, and now they're trying to, you know, pull strings here. And so this caused mass chaos to explode in the courthouse I mean, at this I'm, time. Uh, it's already confusing. Oh, yes. So spectators had to be removed. Brown went on and on, speeching, just talking and talking mm-hmm. and talking, was asked several times to sit down to let other people, <laughs> and he refused. The sergeant at arms literally had to lay on him, to sit, and he was still fighting. All of a sudden, a dog pile starts to ensue to get this man to stop talking so that others can be heard. They didn't think to gag him? You know, threats were made, guns were all drawn. That's never good. And of course, during this time, this is all taking place in the opera house that has clear glass windows and so the entire mobs outside can literally see everything that is going on. Oh man, that's just like a recipe for disaster. At some point though, something happened and it was like they all like snapped out of it and were like, oh, we are not acting like civilized people. And they calmed themselves down I I just have to say I'm kind of shocked that with the mob being like it was like that that damage wasn't done to the Opry house well and that I'm more surprised that people were literally not murdered over this and like there was no there was no murder no one to my knowledge and to my research there was no murdering, no killing over this. Well, I mean, that's good, but that is shocking. I'm surprised. They now, it's, you know, October uh-huh. 16th. Yeah. They go into November debating this House Bill 49. Just back and forth, back and forth over where it's going to be. It's going to be in Kingfisher. They gonna, it's going to be Oklahoma City. Who's going to get it? Mm-hmm. Governor Steele, he's for Guthrie. Right. Remember that. Reaches out to Peary to try and sabotage the bill by saying that Kingfisher men were double-crossing the Oklahoma City. Peary said that the combine would continue to deal with Kingfisher because what came is like back when it was House Bill 7, Kingfisher had signed a petition saying that they wanted the capital to be, I think, in Guthrie. And Steele showed him this this petition. It was like, see, they wanted it in Guthrie. They're really double-crossing you because hmm. they're just trying to get it there in Oklahoma. They're just trying to get it there in Kingfisher now. You know, you should, you know, pull your support. Right. Well, Peary was like, nope, we're going to keep supporting him. Uh. We're going to keep supporting him. So House Bill number 49 was approved on November 10th and sent to Governor Steele's office. (laughs) Enter the railroad companies. Ah. All right. They put their dog into the fight now. Okay. They wanted the capital in Oklahoma City because that's where their railroads were. All right. So they wanted their capital on the routes. Uh So they tried to bribe Steele with 20 thousand dollars 
Okay. Equivalent to about 739000 today. Wow. And so literally what they said was that um, Governor Steele and his wife were like sitting, were somewhere together. I can't uh-huh. remember where exactly they were together. A man walks in and throws an envelope at Mrs. Steele and she catches it. And well, the husband is like, ah, and like runs after him and throws the envelope back out of him. I don't know if he knew there was $20,000 inside of it. Oh, it had money? Yeah. The envelope had twenty the $20,000 inside. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you can applaud him for being cautious. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Steele goes ahead and he vetoes the bill. Uh-huh. In 1894, it's attempted again with a clause that said that the Capitol could not be moved mm-hmm. if they ever voted to move it. This clause, any laws now made could not be, could not say that the Capitol was moved. And if you pass a law that is, then all salaries would be canceled. Oh. So it did not come up again. Ah, threatened right. to take their money away. But let's, it's not dead yet. Oh, okay. Round two. Oh, man. Let's set the stage. Okay. November 16th, 1907. Mm-hmm. Every Oklahoman should know that day. It is statehood day. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plains. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. President Theodore Roosevelt signed into statehood the great state of Oklahoma. There was what was called a wedding between both Oklahoma and Indian Territory. There was a Mr. Oklahoma, I roll, Um, and a Miss Indian Territory. I threw up in my mouth a little bit. They're representing the two territories becoming one. I'm sure they loved that. Mm, I I don't know. Miss Indian Territory was played by Mrs. Leo Bennett, a Muscogee Creek Nation native. Okay. So she was actually really married. And Mr. Oklahoma was played by none other than C.G. Gristman. Jones himself. <laughs> His goal was to make Oklahoma City both the commercial center, mm-hmm. check mark done, and the capital, which he was working on mm-hmm. at the time. There was a new governor by the name of Charles N. Haskell. Of course, he was the first governor of the state of Oklahoma. Uh-huh. Haskell, when becoming governor and when his state was getting ready to be, enter the union, he actually read the Enabling Act of 1906, which set the terms of our statehood. Mm-hmm. The act made Guthrie the capital until 1913, but a permanent one would need to be found eventually okay. by that time. Haskell fully understood Congress, the U.S. Congress, a.k.a. he knew that Congress couldn't establish the capital once Oklahoma was a state because Congress cannot meddle on local issues. Issues or mm-hmm. state issues, mm-hmm. only on federal ones. And he knew that capitals were a local issue. Smart. So I'm going to read from the book. I'm going to read page 40 from Myths and Mysteries of Oklahoma because they just, the author just puts it way betterly than I could write it. It was never completely inevitable that the capital would be moved to Oklahoma City. After all, many states have capitals that are not their largest city. Partisan rancor can account for some of the reason that Guthrie ultimately lost. A predominantly Democratic state did not want its capital in the hands of a predominantly Republican town. Yet partisanship was not the only emotion driving the fight over the capital. As the role played by good Republicans like Gristmill Jones showed. There was also the soaring, sky's the limit, civic boosterism that it was endemic to the frontier where delusions of grandeur could turn any one-horse town into the site of future metropolis. Men like Jones were of this mindset. So if you go into it, if you look at it, when the first battle took Mm -hmm. place in 1890, there were 5,333 people living in Guthrie. Mm -hmm. Oklahoma City had 4,151. So if you went off of what had the bigger, you know, population, Guthrie obviously did. But... 
And that remained that way for a long time because at around 1900, Guthrie had 10,006 where Oklahoma City had 10,037. So Oklahoma City is starting to to grow. To, to grow. But by 1910, Guthrie had stalled out at about 11,654. That's only 100 people shy of its historic high, the highest number it's ever been. Yeah. Oklahoma City at this point had 64,205. Wow. So a lot of this growth happened between 1907 and 1910. And Oklahoma City, their population nearly doubled. And Guthrie's grew by two. Right. Well, and I guess I would think that because... The railroads were there. Absolutely. The river. Yes, the river's there. Like commerce is right there. It's right there. All right. So, And it's literally in the center of the state. Exactly. And Gristmill, he really was integral in part. I think he knew Uh how to work the people. I think he knew how to work the businessmen Uh because he himself was kind of like a businessman. Right. So he actually was elected mayor of Oklahoma City twice. Oh. So he had an interest right there. Uh-huh. He was also very good and close with one Henry Overholzer. Uh, I was about to I was about to ask about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So together they organized the St. Louis and Oklahoma City Railway to connect with the Frisco line. So there we go right there. They've already established one of the biggest railway, you know, systems in the nation. Right. Right through the center of our state. Yep. There um, you go. Of course, this is kind of a funny thing. Overholzer, you know, is the one who was in charge with purchasing the state fair. And it is state fair time right now. Right. So the state fair and all prior to statehood fairs were all hold in Oklahoma City. They were organized by Gristmill and, of course, funded by Overholzer. Mm -hmm. So the actual very first state fair of Oklahoma was staged in Oklahoma City one month one month before statehood day, stealing Guthrie's thunder. Oh. (laughs) So, of course, we had a Republican Congress Uh in the U.S. was protecting Guthrie because Guthrie was a Republican city. Right. And so it really wanted Guthrie to be Mm -hmm. that of the state capital. But Haskell was a Democrat. Mm. And so he, of course, wanted it his way. Mm -hmm. And we were surrounded by Democratic states at the time, like Texas and Arkansas, I believe. Right. And so Haskell... The Haskell family, they were snubbed by Guthrie, like snubbed in society. So they were kind of like, why are we even living here? Like people don't even like us. Well, I mean, I can't even imagine them. I mean, after all of that, I can't imagine people being welcoming or right. Like here you are, to them. the very first governor, the first lady, you know, you're meeting presidents, you're meeting other governors, you're meeting all sorts of dignitaries. Mm-hmm. And the town that you live in doesn't even invite you to tea or lunch well they hate you because you back Oklahoma City yeah exactly so here comes 1909 with a new push to move the capital and so they went out and they said okay well you have to have 5,000 petitioners signatures and then any town who gets that could be considered as the capital Mm. so here comes El Reno Enid Mm -hmm. Eufaula Skyatook and Granite. Skyatook, really? Yeah, yeah Skyatook. And Granite, which is kind of, we had a missed opportunity here because they wanted to carve the capital into the side of their their mountain that their town was in. <laughs> <laughs> Who kind okay. of missed that well, one? I mean, that sounds um, very Mount Rushmore, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> in steps 
E.K. Gaylord. I would assume most Oklahomans know who he is. They should. <laughs> he attended both the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma A&M or Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. And he also is the founder of the Daily Oklahoman, which uh-huh. I believe is our state newspaper. So he steps in with two petitions. Number one, the capital needs a permanent location. And number two, there is a city that has the financial means to become said permanent location. Mm. Thousands, thousands, thousands. Okay. Way over the 5,000 petitioners signed this petition, namely because they were gathered by newspaper boys. Uh, like, pick uh-huh. up your newspaper, sign this petition. Pick yeah. Up your, sign this petition. Yeah, that makes right. sense. It was submitted, mm-hmm. a bill to move it to Oklahoma City, uh-huh. was submitted on the down low. Oh. On July 21st, 1909. July 21st, 1909. It was very, very hush-hush. No newspaper outlets reported on it. Of course they didn't. Nobody (laughs) wanted to say anything about it. And Guthrie at the time had a very boisterous newspaper, Uh but they didn't know that it was being submitted. Right. So um, there was no, there was nothing said about it. Mm -hmm. This is where things get kind of a little trickery, Uh I guess you could say. Like the whole thing hasn't. (laughs) Yeah. So the only newspaper to report on it happening is the Kansas City. Journal and they don't report on it until July 27th. It was submitted on the 21st. So they report on it on July 27th. One day too late for any objections to be filed about it. And it's Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So they're now established there are three finalists as the capital of Oklahoma. Oklahoma City. Right. Guthrie. Right. And Shawnee. Shawnee? When did they step in? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when they threw their hat in. Okay. So Governor Haskell held a special election on June 11th, 1910, Uh a Saturday. (laughs) After the vote counts are taken, Mm -hmm. the courts are closed on Saturday. So there can't be any immediate injunctions filed. Right. Because it's all closed. Right. So now I'm going to read from page 45 of the book because they just kind of sum it up very, very nicely. Okay. In the weeks leading up to the big day, Gristmill Jones and a cadre of boosters fanned out across the state to drum up support in all the towns on rail lines connecting to Oklahoma City. The Daily Oklahoman hammered home the message that it was a matter of personal duty to vote for Oklahoma City. On election day itself, the newspaper also published a sample ballot already correctly marked for Oklahoma City. The final tally was Oklahoma City, 96,261. Oh my gosh. Guthrie, 31,301. And Shawnee, 8,382. Wow. While the last votes were being counted, Haskell was contemplating one more maneuver to pry the capital loose from Guthrie in what today we would call a slam dunk. Haskell had chosen not to spend election day in Guthrie, but instead at a banquet in Tulsa. <laughs> so now they couldn't get him, right? He spent the day in Tulsa. When he heard the results, he orders at about midnight, he orders a train to Oklahoma City. He and his wife and the supporters uh-huh. all get on uh-huh. and travel to Oklahoma City. During that time, he makes some sort of telegram or phone call or something to his secretary, W.B. Anthony. Um, he's the secretary to the governor. He wants him to drive to Guthrie, take the state seal and the book of recording executive acts and bring it back to Oklahoma City. And oh, yeah. that is where the story of the stealing the state seal in the middle of the night. You know, you have to feel sorry for the secretary because he's like, oh yeah, give me this real crap job. Well, and he was like literally getting ready for bed. And and you get a call from your boss and you're like, hey, go do this. 
Like, yeah, I'm the one who's going to take the fall. Right, exactly. Okay. But at the same time, I'm like, it didn't, I mean, I guess he stole it in the middle of the night, but honestly, it was going to happen anyways. It right. was going to get moved. Right. Here's the fine print of the bill. Okay. <laughs> Guthrie still thought that they were going to be the capital until 1913, because that's what it had said on, you know, in uh-huh. statehood that they had until 1913. However, mm-hmm. the ballot that people voted on said that it would be located in that city. Never said when it would be located in that city. 3 a.m. comes around. It's a crazy ride because, you know, there's no interstate at this point. There's right. no I-35. Right. And so it's, you got to think that it's like bumpy roads that... Dirt. Dirt roads that are traveled by, you know, Model Ts and traveled Horses. by horse and buggies mm-hmm. and that thing. And so here you are, crazy ride. And to think that it's midnight, you got this call at midnight and you didn't get there till 3 a.m. I don't know how long the ride would be. Well, I mean, there's no lights, exactly. I'm sure. Exactly. And so... It said that they probably that they might have had a flat tire at during this event. Uh-huh. Anthony and his crew of reporters they show up in Guthrie. Now there are differing accounts of what happens next. There's about four different accounts of what actually happens. Okay. So number one, low level employees are told to get Anthony's bundle of laundry <laughs> out of the courthouse. Inside of said laundry is the state seal and uh-huh. the record book. I thought you were going to say bundle of love. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Number two. <laughs> Anthony and other employees pull up, unlock the safe, take the seal, cover it in brown paper, sign a receipt for it, and leave. Walk out the door with it. Okay. Number three. An unknown person jumps out of the courthouse window with the seal and escapes in a getaway car. Oh. That's the most fun one. Ah. All right. Or number four. An, someone is chased by an angry mob of Guthrie people, <laughs> or Guthrieites, <laughs> like back in 1890. I don't see that one happening if it's three o'clock in the morning. Right. I imagine. Exactly. Most people not having any idea are probably asleep. So either either story that you would like for it to be by dawn, the seal is now delivered to Governor Haskell in Oklahoma City. I have to say, I think I kind of like the bundle of laundry. Haskell delivers a proclamation at his hotel. He even orders a stenographer there to type it all up and everything. Uh It is typed up on hotel stationery. Oh. Nice. Proclaiming that Oklahoma City is the official permanent capital of Oklahoma. So the fight's not quite over yet. <laughs> Haskell hand letters on cardboard, uh-huh. um, a sign that says governor's office and puts it on the outside of his hotel door. <laughs> the proclamation is displayed in the lobby and everyone decides to go to breakfast. Oh, oh, you know. However, mayhem again, because this is Oklahoma and what would we be without mayhem, mm-hmm. ensues. Multiple lawsuits are filed. Um, a federal judge issues an injunction instantly. Armed guards are at all public offices in Guthrie protecting people. They're with the governor at all times protecting him because you just don't know uh-huh. when angry mobs are going to just right. bust out. A deputy U.S. Marshal, Heck Thomas, serves Governor Haskell with papers. There's apparently Haskell says, I don't care <laughs> and the deputy's like all right um the state supreme court comes through it throws out the election results uh-huh. special session is called on december 29th of 1910 and declares oklahoma city as the capital and even declares where the land will be located like they have the land picked out mm-hmm. guthrie has had the capital for how long and still doesn't have a capital building built yet 
So they haven't really done much to promote it as a capital. They had a courthouse, Uh which continues to be the Logan County courthouse now Mm -hmm. today. They have an opera house. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. The challenge, it was challenged. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where in 1911, the justices finally came down and declared what was said (laughs) in that beginning act that Governor Haskell actually read and Uh studied is that Congress could not determine where the capital was. The people of Oklahoma were the only ones that could. Mm-hmm. And they had spoken. Right. So the construction of our Capitol building began in 1914. It stopped in 1970. It stopped in 1917 without the dome for two reasons. One of the reasons was because they were in such a need for those offices that they had to get the people in. And then, of course, the U.S. was starting to enter World War One. Yeah, I was going to so say... That kind of set it back. But the funny thing is that, you know, it wasn't completed Mm -hmm. until 2002. Oh, yeah, that's right. That is the year that the dome was finally put on. That the dome was always intended to be put on. Uh And there's got to be, I mean, you have to think like, you know, after World War One, you know, maybe it got put on the back burner for Mm -hmm. a minute for us to, you know, do some things because... It was the Roaring Twenties and we were doing all sorts of things. And and of course, the Great Depression and hits Mm -hmm. and so does, you know, the Dust Bowl. And our state is in dire straits at that point. So there's no way we're going to put a dome on. Right. And then enter World War II. Yeah, it was just one thing after another, honestly. Exactly. And then you can assume that it probably just got put on the back burner during the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And then maybe in the 90s, they'd finally said, okay, we've got to raise the money to do this. Well. We've got to finish it. And I remember when I was... In school, uh, my senior year of high school, triangulate my age here, (laughs) is when it was under construction. It wasn't Mm -hmm. completed yet, but it was under construction. And you could literally go there and you could sign your name to it. I didn't get to do it, but it was really cool. So in 2001, our story is coming to an end. Guthrie, to make amends, Oklahoma City comes to Guthrie. And they say, (laughs) how about... Like their, of course, their courthouse and stuff is a historic building. Uh-huh. We're going to recognize you as the first capital of Oklahoma. Would you like to house the Oklahoma seal? Mm. Of course they would. Uh-huh. But they couldn't because they're not the official capital. They can't have the official seal. Oh. So they got a replica. And that is the story of the stealing of the Oklahoma State Capitol. Oh, very nice. Thank you. I'm glad you covered that. Thank you, yes. It was It was fun. It was exciting. It's, I mean, not as exciting as they literally stole it and then one day everybody woke up and it was in Oklahoma City. No, yeah. they... I they, mean, that's literally what I had in my mind. <laughs> they, the people of Oklahoma actually voted on it. It actually right. won. People yeah. actually wanted it in Oklahoma City. Yeah. Sorry, Guthrie. They actually wanted there. But there, to this day, I think there are still people who are still bitterly opposed to the fact that it got moved. Uh-huh. Well, over a hundred years ago. Well, when I, well, you know, we always kind of tell each other what our topics are. Yeah. We just never really go into detail about said topic. So my mom had asked me what we were covering this week and I was telling her and I was telling her that you were doing the, the capital. Yeah. And she goes, well, you know, <laughs> our sister trip was in Guthrie and we, we learned all about that. And I go, well, why don't you call and talk to her about it? She goes, she should call her mother. And I was like, she goes, they're still angry about that. And I go, well, from from the brief things she told me, it, it wasn't as sneaky as we all thought it was. Yeah, it wasn't as treacherous. And she means. goes, not according to the people in Guthrie. <laughs> so it was just 
really funny. I was like, well, yeah, our moms used to. Um, so there's four sisters. Yes. And they would take turns planning a sister trip yes. kind of like in the cities of where they currently live. Yeah. And so my mom lives in the Oklahoma City area. Yeah. So, so they went to Guthrie and did she some stuff to there. Podcast. Well, well, and yeah, okay, so this is kind of a, a story sort of about the Oklahoma City area. So I obviously grew up in Tulsa, mm-hmm. known it my whole life. Well, you know, our moms are from the Yukon area. Yes, yes. And I remember growing up, my mom would always, when she would be in conversation, she'd say something like, oh, well, in the city. And me and my brothers would get such a kick out of it. And I would be like, what do you, what city? What What do you mean the city? And she goes, the city. Uh-huh. And I was like, Tulsa's a city. And she'd be like, it's you know, the she's city. like the city. Talk about okay. It is, the, it's still the city. And it's just funny because it would make her so Yeah. <laughs> And then I, when I went to college, see, I grew up in Oklahoma City. So when I went to college at Oklahoma State, you know, we had to retrain people to thinking that when we talking about the city, we weren't talking about Tulsa ever, ever. <laughs> we were always talking about Oklahoma City. And even like one of my very best friends is from Dallas. Uh-huh. And she got into where she was calling it the city. And uh-huh. girl, she's from Dallas, a way bigger city than Oklahoma right. City. And the same with my, you know, my best friend from Kansas City. You know, the city was not Kansas City. Yeah. It was Oklahoma City. Well, and so. I mean, in Tulsa, we never called Tulsa the city. Like it yeah. was Tulsa or yeah. you know, T-Town. That exactly. was a big. Exactly. But so, and ours like the city. It OKC. was. We all knew what she was talking about. We just like right. to be ornery and difficult <laughs> yeah. and be little stinkers. Oklahoma yeah. Cityites, Oklahoma, the city. Oklahoman Cityans. I don't know what to, yeah. we call it that, but like anyway. City. Anyway, it was just a fun little story yes. about the couple. Right. I don't know. I'm tired, so. <laughs> next week, we are covering some paranormal stuff. I don't know when because I'm going to be gone next week. That's right. We're going to try. Uh, We're we going to can... try. I've had, um, we've had some requests. Yes. Which I'm going to cover one of the requests. Me too. My, I'm going to do one my cousin suggested. Yes. And I am doing one, my cousin, aka your brother, and then my best friend suggested. Oh, yeah, 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 so, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll try to do that. And if all else fails, one of us can record. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> can record later, I guess. Well, I, okay, so I'm going to be in Branson with my mom and my grandma next, this coming week. And I'm going to take my computer. So maybe we can try and figure it out. But <laughs> we'll see how it yeah. goes. Yeah, long distance recording. It's obviously it can be done. People did it all through COVID. So I might have to have my cousin hunter yeah show me what's up (laughs) shout out to hunter so all right well um friends cousins like usual if you have any show suggestions any listener tales the good the bad the ugly please be uh, please reach out to us at CuriousCousinsOK at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at CuriousCousinsOK. You can follow us on Twitter at CuriousCousinsOK, but Cousins is spelled C-U-Z-N. Uh, what is it? Facebook is at mm-hmm. CuriousCousinsOK Podcast. Yes. And um, yeah. We would love to hear from yes. all of you. Yes, so. please hit subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. Give us some stars if you would. A review would be fabulous too. We would love it. We need that. Yes. We keep doing this for you guys. So if you like it, please let us know. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. So Jess, tell them what to keep it. Keep it kooky and spooky. Bye. Bye. Bye.